Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I'm super excited to talk about everything that's going on with the organization. And there, there's, a, there's a lot of different approaches out there, I think, when we talk about raising money or just investing in impact startups or even nonprofits or, or just looking at the landscape of so many cool ideas and, and founders out there in the world. Um, and there's a lot of different ways people are doing it. But I think University Impact is doing it in a really creative way and, and one that I haven't seen yet. So before we get into that, can we talk a little bit about both of you guys' journey? Dan, you want to start? And then Joellen, you can hop in, but just talk a little bit about the journey before University Impact. Yeah, absolutely. So my journey in a really meaningful way really started when I was a university student at Brigham Young University. So mm -hmm. BYU, they have the, the Ballard Center for social enterprise. And so yeah. they teach everything from, you know, traditional philanthropy to impact investing, um, nonprofits to social ventures. And so that, that was really my first exposure to this world of, of making an impact in a, a really formal way. Um, and their, their tagline there is do good better. This idea of, you know, how do we really understand what it is that we're doing? How do we approach it in a very deliberate way? And so when I was a, a student at BYU, uh, I started a social venture called Eco Scraps. It recycled food waste into lawn and garden products. So helping huh. to address all of the environmental issues that food waste creates uh, with all the, the greenhouse gas emissions mm -hmm. and everything associated with that. Uh, so I, I went through their, they, they had a social venture business plan competition, you know, got lots of coaching and mentoring and introductions to, you know, kind of everyone in that, that world. And I, I actually dropped out to pursue that business, grew it for just over four years. Uh, the company was acquired by Scott's miracle Grow. Uh, awesome. I grew it one of the, the largest food waste uh, recycling companies in the United States, as well as uh, one of the largest organic brands of lawn and garden mm. products in the, yeah. the U.S. And so, you know, went from a student kind of studying this stuff in an academic setting to very quickly being an operator, experiencing it firsthand, and, you know, just had a, a pretty incredible hands-on immersive learning experience, you know, definitely a crash course of what works, what doesn't work for <laughs> And then it was a very interesting transition being acquired by a Fortune 500 company, going from, you know, a small social venture startup, we're going to save the world to, you know, kind of corporate America. Yeah, a real company. All the time, are you selling out? Like you had this great social mission. Uh, and so how, how do you reconcile that? And that was an interesting evolution in my journey in recognizing that even though, you know, I would argue EcoScraps had more pure intentions than Scott's miracle Grow, Scott's miracle Grow was making a larger environmental difference than, than EcoScraps was. They had the scale, they had the infrastructure, you know, they were able to spend more in R&D that improved their, their products in ways that we just couldn't. They were recycling more than, than we could. Uh, and it was really interesting seeing my good intentions at the end of the day didn't compete with their actual outcome. And so, you know, that, that was an interesting evolution uh, I stayed at Scott's Miracle Grow, had an incredible experience. Uh, I was there for a, a couple of years, left to do some work internationally with the, the World, uh, World Food Program, uh, and then was recruited to, to be the managing director uh, here at University Impact. And so University Impact is an interesting combination of, yeah. of that. 
So working with students, which is very similar to, to my experience, working with uh, startup founders, very similar to uh, my experience. A lot of the work that we do internationally, which is similar to, to what I was doing at the, the World Food Program. And so it's, it's been great kind of seeing all those different pieces uh, come together. Quick piggyback real quick off the, the Scott's uh, acquisition. Do you feel like, did, what did they incorporate of, of EcoScraps into their organization? Did you see it kind of disappear once you were acquired or did, did they embed, you know, your idea and your, whether it was technology or whatever you were using into the overall, whether it was a entire Scott's company or, you know, maybe a line of organic products, like how did EcoScraps evolve when it was acquired yeah absolutely so you know i, I would love to take credit for all of this but <laughs> uh but scott's miracle grow around uh you know kind of within months of them acquiring eco scraps they also came out and they said that they were going to transition all of their gardening products mm. to be organic so eco scraps was a small portion of that there were you know learnings that we had the network that we had built some of the infrastructure that that we had that helped inform their decision making they they are well on their way in fulfilling that commitment uh they've also kept the the eco scraps brand oh nice uh, and you know there's a tremendous amount of stuff that scott's does that they they never talk about they they have incredible recycling programs the amount of green waste that that they recycle but yeah so the you know i would say that the biggest piece of eco scraps kind of in their long-term strategy was that transition from synthetic to organic and you know getting into some of the nuances of that being organic doesn't necessarily mean that it's good for the environment mm. um, and so really understanding those differences and it was it was fascinating seeing them as an organization make this commitment of we are going to have the most sustainable practices even if we don't get the marketing benefit from it even mm. if you know consumers think organic should be the the gold standard when there there are instances where that that isn't the the case and so seeing scott's miracle grow make the the decision even if we can't get credit for it even if the consumer has these misconceptions mm -hmm. we are going to do you know the the most sustainable uh, we're going to go down the path of the most uh, sustainable practices. I always love hearing Dan's Dan's journey. Yeah, super cool. Um, yeah, and but I love it too because I think there's different things that bring us to kind of where we are today with University Impact. Uh, but mine's kind of very kind of different. Where you know I started my career in in the corporate sector, kind mm -hmm. of working with those Fortune 500 brands. I, I like to say I started my career off at Martha Stewart. Uh, and the heyday of the digital boom back in the wow. late 90s, early 2000s. And so in that first time, but really giving me, you know, that just kind of started my career in the in the corporate space, getting opportunity to build a lot of new systems and um, programs within companies, um, especially my area was brand and digital consumer marketing. So really understanding kind of what is this newness, you know, and implementing it in companies where they're like, yes, let's give it to even these younger, the younger generation um, who I was at the time and getting the opportunity to launch these programs, which was super beneficial to kind of building my skills um, and, and my knowledge in the space and, and starting to build a foundation. Through that, you know, about 10 years in, I always had this 
yearning to kind of do more. You know, I think we all have yeah. that in there, that altruistic kind of pull to something. And mine has always been since I, I was a kid, kind of women's women's issues. Um, but mine, it was specifically around women's livelihood creation. And it stays with that. I'm still with that today. And I was thinking about how can I use the skills that I have and support women around the world in livelihood creation? And, and what does that mean? So I took that and was like, I want to go and take some like a sabbatical and, and go mm. on the ground and work with organizations that are supporting women in livelihood creation. And so I did that myself. I kind of took a year to plan this out. I, you know, how you have those like trips that you can kind of plan and do all these things. Well, I actually did it all myself. Networking, talking to people. Should I go to somewhere in Africa? Should I go to India? Should I go to Southeast Asia? And it all came together where I went to Southeast Asia and I went Mm. to Cambodia. And that was through a serendipitous connections through through a woman there who who had a business. I had read the book, First They Killed My Father. So that made an imprint on me. I had friends who went there and it all came together and I found a small organization, a little NGO that was working in livelihood creation. One of the specific areas they were doing was working with rural artisans. And so that kind of combined my passion for artisan work. So I had worked in home and retail uh, and fashion. And so it kind of coupled my business experience and then an area that I actually knew about in textiles and kind of that consumer space. So I went there really just looking at how can I, you know, support them in creating product and, you know, giving more work to, to these women, which it's, you know, the informal sector. Um, We could probably have a whole session on like the informal economy specifically around artisan work and what it means for, women, but people around the world. Um, but, you know, they're working in uh, this province, Takao province, south of Phnom Penh. And, you know, they all had looms under their homes, but really, you know, weren't really selling that much. So how do you make this beautiful craft that was almost lost during their civil war and, and, you know, rejuvenate it and and Mm -hmm. tap into that. So long story short, while I was there, the different other, you know, there was another American woman there working on it. And then we had a funder uh, from the U S who was helping to kind of launch this during that time. We also got an, or, uh, an order to do sarongs for Madewell. Um, you know, part of yeah. J Crew, uh, if people don't know that. And that was really exciting. And so that was really seeing like people really like this product. We were using cotton, uh, which wasn't the traditional silks. We we're like, we want to make this marketable. Silk is gorgeous, but you know, how do you make it functional? And, you know, through all these different things, realize this isn't being as a nonprofit, just doing it as small project work, wasn't the most sustainable way to support these rural artisans. Mm-hmm. So we decided myself, included while I was over there maybe for three months let's pull this out and start it as a for-profit social venture so what was going to be a short time there I ended up staying in Cambodia (laughs) and launching this business and best pivot of my life right it kind of was like that I didn't know what social impact was at that time I was like this is just what I want to do and this is great work and you know we launched the business we set up a rural a weaving center we work really closely and I think that's the key thing we work closely with the artisans themselves and the leaders there and the local chief of the village and really creating a, a connection with them and built a brand. We um, product line and was it due to kind of do bigger scale production. But then at that time, I also realized in that business, the capital constraints of a small 
yeah. business. You know, so that was my first time of how do you kind of manage capital constraints with, with growth and then, you know, doing business responsibly, which was, you know, we were trying to be different than the garment industry, the traditional garment industry, which is huge in Cambodia, mm-hmm. you know, paying well above their wages, um, trying to do extra things for, for our staff that they didn't have access to. Um, but then being confronted for the first time, as we're talking about sustainability, I had no idea about the back end production. What do you do with a small mm. company who's doing rural production of textiles? You can't dump the dye wastewater yeah. into the fields where they're farming, right? So being confronted with all of these challenges and imprinting in myself, like, how do we solve these things as a small business without a lot of cash, right. which right. when you do the research, all this stuff takes a lot yeah. of money in some cases, but, you know, figuring out solutions, working with the team there, how do we solve this? And, you know, so doing that. So that was like my, my, you know, first, like, that's what kind of was my impetus and launch into the career in social impact. And so I stayed there for a year and a half, launching things on the ground, really getting the operations running. Our first collection came back to the States to run the company uh, from here, doing sales and marketing. Unfortunately, we had to close down a myriad mm-hmm. of factors, one of them capital constraints and yeah. kind of when sales are running in a, in a finicky retail market of home textiles and fashion yep. accessories, we think that's another one too. But that was like my first thing, but wanting to kind of stay in this, in, in this world, I had that knowing that that is, you know, women's livelihood creation. And then also just first, you know, small businesses and how important they are and the impact that they can make really kind of seeing that firsthand, not only from my business, but, you know, other businesses that I uh, worked with in Cambodia and and friends who had businesses there. I went back into the corporate world, but with a new, I think, um, perspective on Mm. what corporates could do. And it wasn't just about that financial. So I think we talk a lot about today about purpose. And I'm, I'm a big believer in that, that you can have purpose can be, you know, it's, it's across the business. So Dan was talking, you know, about even um, Scott's and, and how they run and how do you run a more sustainable business? So that became a, a focus of mine in how I did my work in the corporate space. And so my last corporate stint was at the gap mm-hmm. was in the brand management team. And I was fortunate there because I knew about the gap gap has been doing sustainable work for actually a very long time, which people didn't ne- won't necessarily know about, but they've been in the space specifically around water, the way they work with their, the, the women in their supply chain and programs that they have there, the way that they're sourcing. I launched the first uh, Gap for Good, which Mm. is the consumer-facing sustainability strategy for the Gap brand. So, you know, co-developed that that strategy and launched that globally. And so that was my last stint on on a global side or in a corporate side. And then I got the opportunity to kind of round out my experience and from being an entrepreneur, corporate, and go yeah. work on the nonprofit sector. So I went and worked for a nonprofit called Nest, which was great yeah. because this is where they're working with the hand worker economy, you know, really integrating Mostly them. women as well. Exactly. Mostly women. And so there I led the capacity building programming for the small, medium-sized enterprises that our work was really about how do you integrate these businesses, which is out of the informal sector, yeah. how do you integrate them into a global value chain, right? And so I got to develop programs around that. And again, you know, speak to over, you know, over a hundred, at least that I got to kind of talk to, mm-hmm. uh, 
capital constraints was always <laughs> an issue. <laughs> Besides just general business things, yeah. we, we all have those. So there was that thread that I experienced myself. And then that, as I was talking to many different business leaders at these um, SMEs around the world, and that coincided at the same time I was doing my master's in social innovation at Cambridge. So I went back to mm. school years later, there's finally a degree for what I was looking for. Yeah. And, and that coupled with like a, you know, financial inclusion really sparked my interest in uh, impact investing. And then that kind of brought me to kind of where I am today here at University Impact, where I, I do think it's, you know, that idea of where we're, we're training students, I think, and we'll, we'll talk more about this, but giving them that experience that, yeah. you know, I didn't get to get to until mid-career yep. maybe, but then also, you know, being able to kind of fund those a lot of those businesses, there's so many are out there. So, you know, yep. accelerating, finding them and, and funding them, which is really what we want to do. And that goes right into, I think, what University Impact is and sort of how you look at those capital constraints and what is possible with a donor advised fund. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk a little bit about at the heart of University Impact is the DAF sort of mm -hmm. system. So let's talk about what that is and how that is beneficial for small social enterprises, startup nonprofits, and, and just like you talked about the capital constraints for impact businesses around the world. Yeah. So, I mean, starting with just donor advised funds, you know, at the very beginning of this conversation, you talked about it being kind of a, a niche product, which is absolutely what I thought when I first started looking into it. Mm -hmm. But two, two stats that were pretty mind-blowing. One, there's $140 billion in donor-advised funds. So like, by no means is this a small yeah, pool. Right. And Fidelity Charitable is now the single largest nonprofit in the United States. Wow. And it's all because of the, the donor-advised funds that, that they host. I, I feel like people think it's a, a niche product and like yep. that what I thought, you know, I, I had heard them about them on occasion and more than anything, it's, you know, my current conclusion isn't that it's a niche product, but that it's largely a black box. Yep. That people That's a better way. Yeah. It's a better way to look at it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's, I mean, it's shocking to me how much capital is in donor advised funds and perhaps the most frustrating thing. And if, you know, if you do a Google search for donor advised funds, this is what you'll see. Roughly a, a quarter of all that capital has sat dormant for over a decade. So not only is it a very large pool of capital, but it's actually a very, you know, it's, uh, I would argue, a highly underutilized mm -hmm. pool of, of capital. And so, what, what would be the reason for that? You know, it's uh, with any pool of capital that large, like the, the reasons are many, but some of it's, you know, kind of the, the issue at most of the, you know, I would argue that the biggest reason why that capital is sat dormant is people think of donor advised funds as a tax tool and not as a charitable tool. Gotcha. And so, and, and that has created all sorts of kind of second and third degree implications, which, you know, like Joellen and I could sit here and talk about that for, uh, for hours. <laughs> a donor advised fund is a giving tool. It's unfortunate that it, you know, is mostly only talked about from a, a tax efficiency perspective. And the, and the use case of it is, I guess, how, I guess, how do you, does university impact use it versus mm -hmm. others who kind of have it dormant? You do not do that, right? You're sort of, the intention of it is to 
allocate appropriately into you know nonprofits and startups and companies that you believe in. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. So I think we kind of look at it as the way we look at our structure and our model as being different is maybe others are more passive. So mm-hmm. the donor, the person who has their their DAF with us has to do a lot of the heavy lifting themselves. You know, make the selection of a 501c3 nonprofit here in the States, you know, select the bucket button and and send it off. And so they have to do the research. Um, and people have busy lives, right? So yep. that it's not that they don't actually want to give. I think, you know, we have a very charitable country um, as far as people wanting to give. And so what we have done is how do we take that and make it more proactive to yes. accelerate the money coming out, but really support those people who, you know, they want to do more with, with their donor advice fund and they want to actively give. Um, so how do we work with them? Kind of, we like to liken it as like being the the back office, you know, the, the family back office. So mm-hmm. how do we go out there? You know, we're actively going and finding um, and sourcing new opportunities, both social ventures and nonprofits. Mm-hmm. And then we're doing the due diligence on them, just like any investment firm, understanding, mm-hmm. you know, social impact, financial, the financials, what are their outcomes? And then that's going through our impact investment, you know, our investment committee for, for approval. And then we can bring that to the donors and all that's done based on what their their impact preferences are. So what are what's of interest to them? Is it poverty alleviation? Is it water and sanitation? We have some people, you know, they're very into the environment, specifically looking at coral reefs, or you know, you know, they might have specific issues. But we've structured it where you know how can we look at what people are interested in and actively work with them to develop a strategy or act on their strategy by going out and sourcing and, and finding opportunities. The many that are out there beyond just what's here in the state. So a lot, a lot of things, I think that's a, a big thing to point out too, is uh, a lot of the, the bigger, some of the other commercial um, donor advice funds out there really just focus on US nonprofits, mm-hmm. which is, that's just the way that they were structured. We've structured it where you can still do those, you know, those nonprofits that you're interested in here, whether it's given to your church, your local food bank, you know, the right. American Diabetes Association, whatever it might be. But then we're taking it, beyond that. So we're looking at nonprofits now uh, around the world, social ventures. So that's where we get into the impact investing both here and abroad. I want to understand like when, uh, let's say a family or or somebody inherits money and and they put it in sort of a donor advised fund and it goes into, let's say a social venture, right? Which is a for-profit company let's say for example, company A, would they get returns from that? Like eventually, how would that part work? Like from a for-profit company wise, like they would get returns on that with the fund. Like I'm trying to understand, like is is part of it allocated toward nonprofits as a percentage, right? You know, 50% go to nonprofits, 50% social ventures, or is it just a one-by-one case basis based off of like what that person wants to do? you know, with their impact and with their money? Yeah, no, it's a a great question. And some of this is the way that philanthropy has evolved in the, in really across the world, but specifically here in the United States, um, makes some of these conversations kind of difficult to have. Like we we don't have the the right language for this. And so without getting too academic, you know, we would argue you should always start with the problem that you care about solving. Yep. And then it doesn't matter if it's a nonprofit or a for-profit that's solving that problem. 
Like there, there are just different business models that are better suited for different types of, of problems. Totally. Yep. And then within those business models, there are then different types of financing tools that are available to finance that solution. So it could be a grant, a recoverable grant. We do credit guarantees. We do you know, low interest loans, market rate loans, direct equity investments. And so, you know, Joellen just, I, I agree with everything that she was saying. And all of that's really from the, the donor's perspective of how do we solve all these problems for them? Mm-hmm. Your question is really hitting on how do we solve these problems for the entrepreneur? Yep. How do we, depending on the problem, how do we structure it in a way that the the way that we get them the money is, you know, as enabling as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in some cases that's equity, some cases that's grant. And, and then you do have financial returns in some of those cases with an equity investment, with a loan, yep. um, you know, with a recoverable grant, you may have money coming back. And what's interesting with the donor advised fund is none of it goes to the donor. It all goes back into the donor advised fund for mm-hmm. a future. Gotcha. Once the money's in the donor advised fund, gotcha. it's stuck there. You can recycle it as much as you want, but you can never pull any of it out for, for your own personal benefit. And gotcha. the, the thing that I think is so uh, powerful about a donor advised fund is the fact that you can do everything from a grant to an equity investment. Really cool. I mean, yeah. You have the maximum amount of flexibility to determine how you're going to fund this social entrepreneur, which, you know, if you get into the world of social entrepreneurship, Joellen, you know, touched on kind of some of these capital constraints that a lot of these social entrepreneurs run into. We need more flexible, we need more mm-hmm. flexibility when it comes to the capital to really address these solutions. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, I, I've spoken with, at this point over the last seven years, I've interviewed over 650 wow. social entrepreneurs from around yeah. the world. And the biggest hurdle, right, you could imagine, right, it, it is always raising money because mm-hmm. traditionally raising money involves going to a traditional form of investor, right? Whether it be a bank, whether it be a VC, and they look at things much differently, I think, than impact investors would, right? Or, or a person looking at, not necessarily to make returns, but have their money go to something that they care about. That person's going to listen differently. They're going to look at things differently. They're going to look at it from a much more of a long-term point of view rather than, you know, a five to 10-year investment point of view with my returns going to be in that, you know, that time span. And, and so I, I love these ideas where entrepreneurs, especially social entrepreneurs and impact entrepreneurs have options Mm -hmm. of where they can go to get certain funding. I just think it's now is is such a great time for it, you know, just because now we have the ability to kind of get that information out there faster. And there's really great companies from around the world that can leverage this, right? Leverage this opportunity. Maybe talk a little bit about some of those highlights, if you could, like whether it's a nonprofit or it's a a for-profit business that you've seen come through, come through the door and, and have done really well and is sort of a, a beacon of, of what your organization is all about. So uh, Central Park Bees, they're based mm-hmm. in Tanzania. They're currently one, one of my favorites for mm-hmm. multiple reasons. Uh, it's a company that's working with small shareholder farmers. Most mm-hmm. of these small shareholder farmers are living you know, below or close to the, the poverty line. 
So Central Park bees, they come in they, and they teach them how to uh, be beekeepers. And then they finance the installation of beehives on their, their farm. And so the initial capital outlay for the farmer is very minimal. Uh, and the incremental work for the farmer to all of a sudden be a beekeeper is also pretty minimal. Uh, and Central Park bees will then buy all the honey back from the, the farmer Hmm. So on an annual basis, they're able to increase the, the farmer's take-home income by two to four X. Oh. It's an incredible amount of money back into the, the farmer's pocket. Uh, and then Central Park Bees, they're consolidating all this honey, processing it. Uh, and they're currently one of the, the larger exporters uh, in all of Tanzania for honey. And so we, we recently issued them uh, probably around $150,000 loan. You know, it's, it's a great for-profit business. They're profitable. Mm -hmm. They needed mm -hmm. working capital. We're able to provide that, go through, you know, understand the business uh, mechanics and the, the financials and the, the impact. So we issued that in, it was probably what, half a dozen, half a dozen to 10 uh, individual donor advice funds decided to participate. Nice. You know, the, the smallest uh, donor advice fund, you know, probably put in $5,000. Some of the larger ones probably put upwards of 50 or $60,000 into it. So we were able to pool that money together, put together $150,000 USD loan, issue that to Central Park fees. Um, and now they're making their, their monthly payments back. And those returns are now going back into the donor advice, the various different donor advice funds, all for future giving, touching on, on what we were talking about before with how that works with those, those returns. So I, you know, like across the board here, you have this incredibly smart entrepreneur, a local that's come up with a solution that works for his market. Yep. He understands mm -hmm. how many people are employed uh, as small shareholder farmers, the, the best way of increasing their income, solving this uh, market need, with getting, you know, higher quality honey um, and doing it in a, a for-profit scalable way. But there, there was just a lack of capital. He couldn't find uh, working capital in Tanzania. And so, you know, solving that problem with the donor advised funds, you know, I, I, uh, it's awesome. It's awesome. Very, very yeah. Exciting. Do you want to give us one, Joel? Yeah, one yeah. So, <laughs> so my favorite that I will, I have many favorites or I shouldn't necessarily say favorites, sure, but yeah. I think it's like your kids. I know, yeah. That. <laughs> it's, um, but I think that's innovative because I think innovation in social entrepreneurship um, and these companies, we have to think about it outside what we think of in the Western maybe context yep. of what we have it here is a company we've invested in called uh, Cold Hubs. And they do mm. cold storage and they're out of Nigeria. So super exciting. So tapping back into, you know, the small shareholder farmers, they have their produce, they were taking it to the market, but a lot of it was being lost, mm -hmm. right? right? Because yep. it's, there's, you know, it's in that transport, the heat, you know, they lose a lot that's, that's no longer edible and can be sold. So this company started storage hubs, kind of going from five to 19, like these could almost look like kind of small little, you know, like the, like they're not trailers, but they'd be kind of that size yeah. that you'd have somewhere portable looking. And that's where farmers can kind of take and put their, put their produce and it's, it's cold. Mm. It, you know, it remains cold. And so, you know, what's really exciting there is like by, by doing that, they've been able to double the income of those small shareholder farmers because they're no longer losing the produce. Yep. So they're able to kind of sell what they grow and make, but where we came in kind of seeing that opportunity there is they recognize the opportunity to expand. Mm. I think 
this is another area that's really exciting is there are, you know, recognizing opportunities within their own market, innovation that's not there yet, but that's going to help uh, the local, the local, local infrastructure in the market is they started cold chain logistics services. So buying trucks, transport, you know, around the country, maybe mainland North and South. So our loan that we gave to them um, that, you know, was funded through a donor advised fund was supporting them in buying a, a fleet of trucks. And so that will allow these farmers, you know, to kind of transport logistics. And, you know, it's really exciting because this is their, I mean, in the, they're reporting back to us. They are now the cold, the logistics, yeah. cold storage logistics in the country, which mm-hmm. I think, you know, kind of where they started off targeting this specific market. And then that, when you see the growth of income, that trickle down of how it helps those farmers and then ultimately their families and their communities. And so, you know, that's a specific opportunity that I think just shows where innovation happens in a market where there's opportunity um, and how we funded something very very specific as well, that it was around, they needed the capital needs for those trucks that were going to ha- allow them to expand their business in a, in a completely new way. Yeah. No, I think those are two fascinating examples. And also both both in, in Africa, which I'm so bullish on, like that continent is just like, is just going to be unbelievable. There's just unbelievable talent coming out of there. And I think we see as technology embeds itself in areas where it just hasn't yet, mm-hmm. there's just so much creativity and innovation coming out of coming out of of places around the world that just yeah. haven't had the opportunity yet to show its its creativity. So it's really really cool and fascinating time right now. Yeah, and if you can chime in along that vein, not necessarily a social venture, but part of what University Impact does, we we. We're able to source all these opportunities, do this due diligence, operate in multiple different countries, in large part because of our model mm-hmm. of our impact associates are university students. And they come from universities all over the world. Currently, I, I believe it's roughly half of our associates are based in Africa. Yeah. Uh, and so wow. here you have, you know, students that care about their own country's economic development. Right. And they are passionate in a way that's difficult to understand as a Westerner because it's, I mean, it's personal to them. They have an incredible amount of pride in their country. They understand that potential that you just talked about. Now they're the ones finding these opportunities, doing this due diligence, getting this incredible hands-on learning opportunity. Amazing. Why do some of these solutions work? And why do other ones not work? And what does this mean in their personal context in their country? And so, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, the capital constraints, but the other thing that we need to solve for is we need more people in their own countries working on these solutions. Yep. That's, that's really what I think is so powerful about University Impact is it's pairing this greater access to capital with training the next generation of social impact leaders. Mm-hmm. So important. That's it was the next segue I was going to go into. So let's <laughs> let's get into it because I mean I think yeah I look at, at the end of the day we always have this influx of of really innovative founders and creative yeah. thinkers and I think those will always be around just because it, it just it, inspiration and, and creativity it just it just breeds entrepreneurship to around the world to solve problems like you said really locally too is, is where i think the fascinating part of all this comes from but the other side of it is we need the next generation of really good allocators of capital 
Yes. Uh, we need people who understand where to put the money, right? And let it not be dormant, whether it's in any type of a fund or any type of, of situation, any type of account. If we have people who understand these spaces and they can put it in the right areas to keep yielding impact, to keep yielding, you know, returns and job creation and economic development, you know, in these places, like that's the one of the most, probably the most important part of all this. So talk about that sort of system set up at the organization where I guess you recruit from universities to kind of come in and do a sort of an internship type of thing, you know, study the data and kind of go them down a journey of making decisions on how to allocate this money properly. Yeah. So this is, this is one of, I, I light up when I talk about this because the students are amazing to work with. So bright and talented and so insightful. So jealous of them. They got all these opportunities. Yeah, I know. Right. I was like, where was this when I was back in school, (laughs) but I still get to work with them. So on a day-to-day basis and it's awesome. So uh, where starts off. So we actually run boot camps we call them boot camps, mm-hmm. university yep. impact boot camps, and we run them twice a year. So they're a three week training course, immersive training. I like to call it MBA meets social impact course. Mm, so, you know, we have students from all over the world, primarily the US, South Africa, then we have the UK and India are four markets right now join are selected to join this program, you know, anywhere, depending on the time of year, 40, our summer one coming up now in July is 60 students mm. in our, in our, in our cohort. And they go through this three week course of general training on key topics of what is social impact? How do you measure it? How do you think about theory of change outcomes based? Then digging into the financials. Um, how do you do financial analysis? Because um, some of them aren't coming from, I'll get into the, the makeup of them, but a lot sure. of them, not all of them are business majors, but getting into financial analysis and then pairing that though into the criteria of what you need to do as an impact investor. So looking at what does it mean to do a grant, you know, deliver a grant in philanthropy. What does it mean for debt or equity investment? So learning all those Mm -hmm. principles, but core to that is doing two two key projects during that three weeks where they are doing due diligence. So they're actively looking at uh, making a grant at a a company where they would give a grant to, so a nonprofit or a loan. And they're looking at the financials. We provide them cases, digging into them and writing a memo within a team, going through that process, which can be very difficult at a time. And we tell them have a growth mindset and they present that to our investment committee, just like they would Mm -hmm. as an associate. So our investment committee comes in and, and they love to participate that in that and you know question the students but then also give them feedback um, so that they can take that and I think what's really great about our training is that we invite new students into that but then the students who then come in to work with us and I'll tell you about how that happens then also help co-teach so we also think mm. you the best way by learning is by teaching Mm-hmm. So they actually help to teach some of those courses within the within there. So there's Dan and I and other guest speakers that we bring in and guest lecturers, but the students help to kind of do some of those course trainings, things that they practice day in and day out once they join University Impact as, as an associate, and they mentor them in that due diligence um, process. So that's a really great way for them to kind of gain those leadership skills, but then also kind of flex their muscles and, and practice and, and teach back and mentor others and coach them in that process. At the end of that, you know, some of those students are invited to join as associates at UI yeah. in our fund. So they're helping to do uh, deal sourcing, due diligence, and then portfolio management, client engagement. So they're actively participating in every aspect of running University Impact, which 
we think is, is really powerful in gaining that real life experience that's, you know, by the time they leave here, we see them as, you know, a second or third year analyst because they're presented with those real life problems of, you know, a business, business challenges that you might yeah. face day in and day out, but also understanding, you know, they're doing that rote practice and understanding of actively out there talking to entrepreneurs, picking up the phone, talking to them, learning that process. And then, you know, how do you manage a portfolio and how do you think through that strategy? And they do that with Dan and myself. Um, how do you engage with clients and talk to them about their social impact preferences and, and what it means to, you know, invest in some of these companies? So they're active in all of that. And I think the exciting thing too, is that, so that when we talk about our, Dan mentioned earlier that we have about half of them are in Africa. So we have our hub here in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually launched a hub in South Africa in the last fall and with the support of the U.S. consulate in Cape Town. And so we're able to kind of accelerate our trainings, hire more students as as associates who work with us, but it expands our footprint. So, you know, we definitely see South Africa as our first international hub. And even though we have some students, you know, in India and the U.K. that have worked with us, we have someone in, in China right now. She goes to school in the U.S., but she's based in China right now, is, you know, expanding that hub, as Dan was speaking to earlier, of, of building those leaders on the ground where they can learn and then, you know, work within their own market. Is there, is there a scenario where let's say, you know, a company is sort of brand new, right. Or Mm -hmm. somebody comes to you with like, you know, a business plan, an idea, is that too early on in the stage for, you know, UI to, to be involved in them or do they have to be, you know, two years in existence or something like that, three years in existence for you guys to even kind of take the time to, to look at it? Yeah, that's a really good question. So generally, we try not to base things off of number of years that they've been around, mm-hmm. but what milestones they've been able to hit and mm-hmm. kind of the earliest that we try to invest is at the point where they've started to show that there's some product market fit. Yep. And so, you know, generally we don't want to fund the, the earliest stages of R&D and product development. You know, we, we want to see that they've already started to engage with customers, that there's kind of a, an existing uh, MVP, you know, some product or service mm-hmm. that people are at least able to uh, comment on. So, you know, this university impact, we try to not be the, the very, very first capital in. But we do be the first institutional capital in. And so we're we're comfortable being pretty early. Yeah. I wanted to to kind of touch on a little bit from like we talked a little little bit earlier about like, you know, bigger corporations and sort of the role that they don't play, they do play, they can play. And, And this is just coming from sort of an ignorance point of view that you know, I don't know too much about how how people can structure things, but can companies, let's say let's just go for Scots, for example, right? Like it would seem to be cool for them to have, you know, a donor advised fund where they allocate charitable dollars that I'm sure they're due anyway, but put in something like this and use it specifically, you know, for, you know, the food and agriculture nonprofits or food and agriculture, small businesses in, you know, whether it's Africa or Asia or India or whatever like that, can these companies, like, and being sustainability and, and, and social impact top of mind now for a lot of, you know, Fortune 500 companies, is that possible for, for them to do? Is this an avenue that they could take? Yeah, it is. So it, 
it's going to look a little bit different for a corporation. And mm -hmm. I actually think Scott's is a, a good example of this. So they there's the Scott's Miracle Grow Foundation, and they mm -hmm. recently just announced, can't remember how how much capital, but some portion of capital that they want to use to address um, the inequality around prison sentencing for low-level uh, drug offenses. Huh. Mm -hmm. So Scott's Miracle Grow, they've gotten into hydroponics, uh, yep. which is largely due to the growth of cannabis. the legalization of cannabis. Um, and so there, there are all sorts of social issues here in the United States of people going to, to prison, having very long sentences for, you know, yep. nonviolent drug possession charges. And so hmm. they've decided that's where they want to focus the, the efforts of. of that's incredible. That's awesome. Um, and so, you know, I, I actually think it's very creative and for Super them, this, yeah. this, this doesn't actually benefit us from a business perspective, but this is the community in which we're operating. Yep. Like they're not our shareholders, but you know, these communities are our stakeholders and so let's use the resources that we have to address some, some of these, these issues. Uh, and so I, I was, you know, very surprised at how forward thinking they were, how creative they were in structuring that. And so it, it absolutely is something that corporations can do. And I, I do think, candidly, quite a few organizations, Joellen mentioned the, the gap, mm -hmm. kind of everything that they were doing, but they weren't getting credit for it. I, I think there's quite a bit of that happening that people just aren't very aware of. Yeah, I agree. They just do it kind of behind the scenes and are, are keeping it going with the, with the teams and how it either maps to their, their business objectives or is aligned to it in some way because it's their community and how it aligns with their values and their, and their purpose. Well, I, I'd like to end on a little bit about the future. Now, I know it's kind of tough to, <laughs> to, to, to look at that sometimes, especially now in sort of the era we're, we're living in. But let's maybe if we look, you know, even three to five years down the line, what are you most optimistic about? You know, what are you seeing that is inspiring, inspiring you, whether it's from the company side, the founder side, the student side, what's maybe like some successes or stuff that you guys are working on goals, maybe that you want to hit or big projects within over this three or five year span for, for the organization? You know, I, I think on a daily basis, there are kind of three things in Joel and, you know, I'd love to mm -hmm to see how your perspective differs from, from <laughs> so the, um, the students, probably first and foremost, their, their passion, the quality of the work, how much they care about this and how many of them there, there are like, it's, mm. it's probably one of our biggest frustrations that we don't have a larger program, just given how many students are reaching out on a, a daily basis. Mm -hmm. That's number one. And then seeing the ingenuity and the grit of these social entrepreneurs. If we can just get them more resources and get out of their way, like we will solve a lot of these problems really quickly. And the third piece is how charitable a lot of the, uh, these donors are and they want to do good, they mm -hmm. just don't know how. Yeah. How excited they get when they say, you know, if I have a team that can do this, that mm -hmm. specializes in this, like, Yes, let's spend this money faster. Um, and so you you have these three pieces that all existed, and really all we're doing is bringing them together. Uh, and you know, I would argue it's creating something pretty pretty powerful. Yeah, no, I agree with with all of that. I'm just 
if people could see me, my, my head is nodding and I'm like, yes. And yeah, I think if, yeah, getting the students, the student aspect. Yeah. There, I think there's so much potential there and it's, you know, you want to, I think there is, I think, you know, taking what Dan was saying and going, you know, just digging in the, the appetite and the, from the students out there that Mm -hmm. they want to do this. And those who maybe weren't even introduced to it before, it's because in, you know, when you get into other countries, the concept maybe isn't there yet. We, those of us in it day in and day out, forget that, but then they are introduced to it and they're like, it opens up their world. We have a, we have a student right now from India and she took our, our course and she's like, I'd never heard of this before. I never thought of it. And this has totally opened up my world and, and thinking to what I could do. She's a master's in environmental science. And she's mm. like, this has expanded. But I was thinking about what I could do beyond, you know, my master's or career yeah. opportunities. She'd never thought about investing. And so I think, you know, there's more of that out there. Um, and I think that's really exciting because I think that creates a systemic change of that happens. And then yes, with the, with the founders, I agree with Dan is like, how can we connect all of this, getting them the capital that they need to, you know, and, and finding them and letting them do their thing and, and, and create the impact that they have set out to do. Yep. Well, Joelle and Dan, thank you so much. This was uh, very enlightening for me. Uh, and I'm, I'm super happy we got to talk about uh, everything that we did. So, I mean, continued best of luck with, with everything that you and the team are doing each day. I mean, it's just a, uh, it's such a good time that we're in right now for something like this to really kind of take off and really kind of educate both sides, right? Donors of mm-hmm. what's possible with their money, but also students coming in, what's possible with their research and, and their allocation. And then also for the founders, like what's possible now to get really good forms of capital, right? Mm-hmm. That uh, really can, can take them to where they want to go. So best of luck in the future and, and thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thank you for having us.